Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. It's 2016, and all eyes turn to America as the presidential race to be the 45th President of the United States plays out. From a distance, this vast and powerful country can sometimes seem redolent with contradictions and division, gender, race, class, security, domestic and international. But what is it really like coast to coast? Cosmologist and writer Jana Levin, historical novelist, essayist and critic Thomas Mellon, and iconic feminist and journalist Gloria Steinem take the measure of their homeland, foreign and domestic, and explain what gives with Trump in a conversation supported by Craig's investment partners and chaired by Guyon Espiner. We hope you enjoy this session. Kia ora, good evening and welcome to this session, The State of America. We're going to determine the state of America in the next hour. One minute for every state and we'll still have some time for some questions. If I could just remind you to turn off Tinder, Grindr, Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) Facebook. If you've got LinkedIn on your phone, you can leave now. If you've got an old-fashioned phone that rings, you could turn that off too, please. Um, If I could just thank the sponsors before we do get underway and acknowledge the support of the Platinum patrons, Mary and Peter Biggs, uh, for bringing uh, Thomas Mellon out with us. Acknowledge the support too of the American Embassy for Gloria's presence here and acknowledge also the festival silver sponsor, Craig's Investment Partners, for supporting and uh, acknowledging this session. We do really appreciate their support, so thank you for that. I'm Guy Espiner. I spent 10 years uh, writing for newspapers when they were a thing. I spent 10 years in television current affairs when that was around. And I now work on the radio, co-hosting Morning Report on Radio New Zealand and also writing for The Listener. So let me introduce a diverse and fascinating panel this evening. Jana Levin is a cosmologist, a professor of physics and astronomy, and the author of several books, including the fabulously titled How the Universe Got Its Spots, a prize-winning novel, A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines, and her most recent book, Black Hole, Blues and Other Songs from Outer Space, which tracks the search for gravitational waves. She studies chaos and black holes. It's complex stuff, but can she explain Donald Trump's popularity? (laughs) Thomas Mellon, welcome to you. Thomas is a literary critic and essayist. He's a contributor to, to many publications, including The Atlantic, GQ. He's written nine novels, often using the backdrop of 20th century American politics. He's recently published... Finale, a novel of the Reagan years, and once said that he had the kind of happy childhood that is so damaging to a writer. <laughs> I'm told he's a Republican, but we may have to get a status update you did. on that during the hour. <laughs> Done. I think we might have got one. Uh, Gloria Steinem is also with us. She's a journalist, a writer, a world leader in the feminist movement. She has received numerous awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2013, which I'm told is the highest honour an American citizen can be given. She's founded magazines. And she's written many books, of course, the latest of which is My Life on the Road. Indeed, she's been in the driver's seat, hasn't she, of social change and has never held a driver's licence, I'm told. Once. Once. Once, once I had a driver's license. Okay. And once described cars as speeding tin cans. 
But let's begin our road trip. In an effort to bring cosmology and politics together, Jana, can I start by asking you, in 1960, JFK urged America to go to the moon. Where might Donald Trump take us? <laughs> I feel so ill-equipped to even be on this stage. I can only say that I, I have very little interest in anything that's happened more recently than about 500 million years. <laughs> and so I bear, it's, you're lucky I even know who Trump is. <laughs> Um, but I can say that, I mean, it's an abuse on critical thinking. And so, you know, his um, campaign. Um, and so there's this sort of concern that not only will we not be interested in fundamental science or research or exploration under that kind of leadership, but we might not even care if facts are completely deformable um, or, or if they should be sustained from one minute to the next. I just, I just think it's sort of... Um, it's a death knell for critical thinking. Thomas, can you explain <laughs> Donald Trump? Because from this distance, from this distance, we keep thinking, oh, he's going to drop out, he's not going to get the nomination, then he's got the nomination, and then it was, oh, he's never going to win the presidency, but he just might. What does it say about the state of America um, that he is so popular? Well, um, I'd have to say, as a moderately conservative person, I'm less interested in explaining him than in vanquishing him. Um, he, is, uh, he is dangerous, he's grotesque, and uh, if this means the end of the Republican Party, um, so be it, because... Um, a party shouldn't be nominating somebody who stands for nothing. I, I think the mistake in uh, people's uh, attempts to understand Trump often comes when they make the assumption that he is this extreme right-wing ideologue. I don't think that's true. He stakes out positions which are traditional extremist right-wing positions, such as the anti-Muslim position on, uh, on immigration, building the wall, all of this. But he's ideology-free. The only ideology he has is himself. Uh, he is narcissistic, probably sociopathic, and uh, he, um, he believes in nothing. And if he secures the nomination of a party, uh, then the party, by extension, believes in nothing. So I think this might be the breakup of the Republican Party, which will give me less joy than it will a lot of people. But uh, if that's the case, uh, then the time has come. Gloria, can he win? Well, first, I agree with everything my colleagues have just said. <laughs> you know, first of all, I have to say I'm a hopeaholic, so you should take that into consideration. <laughs> But I do not believe he can win. I think he is a backlash candidate. We have had a long period of time in which uh, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, the, uh, the environmental movement have become majority movements. And I think there are a lot of people, and not enough to win, <laughs> to vote for him, but still a lot of people who feel displaced by the lack of hierarchy. They were brought up to believe they could count on a certain authority because of their sex or their race or whatever it is, and he represents that. 
So you might say it's we're having a backlash because we had a front lash. <laughs> uh, and I also think it's important to remember that the Republican Party has changed profoundly from its old centrist days. And that really started with the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which drove the old racist Democrats out of their party and caused them to come over and start to take over the Republican Party. Then there was Nixon's Southern Strategy. Then there was um, Bush II, who invented uh, faith-based funding in order to, to give federal dollars to 8,000 fundamentalist Baptist churches and others who became a vote delivery system. So there's been a long time of taking over the party, and they tend now to nominate frequently people who can't get elected in a, in a general election. So my most hopeaholic uh, uh, hope is that because he has come up as a backlash candidate without even the party, without the Koch brothers, who are the infamous financiers of the right wing, for instance, uh, he might cause the implosion, as you say, mm -hmm. of the Republican Party. And if the centrist Republicans come back and take it over, that would be a plus. Right now, there's almost nothing in the Republican Party platform that the majority of Republicans agree with. Mm -hmm. It has become so extreme. So it's possible that he would be <laughs> uh, good news in the sense that he would cause the centrist old real Republicans, who many of us here remember, to come back. Jana, do you think that people actually believe that he would be able to ban all Muslims from the United States or indeed build a wall and get someone else to pay for it? Do they actually believe that he would be able to do that? You know, I have very, again, all my answers are going to be, I have very little insight into the human psyche. You know, I do math. <laughs> and the beauty of, of doing mathematical physics is that it's not only true for me, right? It's true for Ramanujan, who came out of a small town in India, and it's true on the other side of the galaxy, and it's, it's true for somebody else. This whole human psychology thing <laughs> is very confusing to me, because it seems to be that there are some truths truths for some people um, that are non-transferable, like the idea that you could ban all Muslims or build this wall. I don't know if people believe it, but there's, this was totally mystifying for me. I have to say, I thought that this was kind of a joke, the whole Trump popularity. And I think what happened to a lot of people who live in the kind of bubble that I do, where I'm around a lot of academics and scientists and writers, we do not realize what the rest of the world is doing. You know, America is the size of a continent almost, and it's very vast in, in the different um, attitudes. And I think what alarms me, and I, I love your hopeaholism, um, <laughs> But what alarms me is that we didn't take it seriously soon enough. Mm -hmm. And we made a terrible mistake. And by we, I mean sane people um, in the country. <laughs> and we made this terrible mistake. We, we thought it was uh, not serious and that there's no way well, I it think would this continue. Is, this is fascinating. I want to pick that up with you, Thomas, because 
you know, Jana's right, isn't, isn't she? The, the, the media, the political elite, the intelligentsia, whatever you want to call it, kept writing him off as a joke. Yeah. Is there a class distinction here? Did, was there a, a disconnect where actually, you know, those people missed the fact that he was actually talking to the kinds of people that, that Gloria said, uh, the, the backlash? I think, you know, one of the things that it's useful to remember is that Donald Trump in the course of the Republican primaries, received a lower percentage overall of the votes in the primary than any Republican candidate who went on to get the nomination in more than 40 years. There are, uh, even though the party has moved far right, as Gloria is saying, uh, there are just vast portions of the party that cannot abide him. One of the problems to get down in the weeds about how he succeeded in securing the nomination is the Republican Party is run on the presidential level right now more the way the Democratic Party used to be. I mean, uh, Mrs. Clinton will get the nomination with those 400 superdelegates. That's her firewall. They don't exist in the Republican Party. And it, the, the Democrats put the superdelegates in there after the McGovern landslide loss uh, in 72 because they wanted to give a certain element of control back to you know the party stalwarts and elders. The, um, Trump benefited from this ridiculous proliferation of candidates, 16 people, you know, um, and he was able to chop them off one by one. And all of the pundits were caught uh, completely flat-footed. And uh, he also, we were talking about Twitter uh, a moment ago backstage. Um, Twitter, it has its place, but this is the first real Twitter campaign that we've had in America, and it's his medium. And I mean, I live in Washington, a lot of my friends are speechwriters, and a lot of them are unemployed because the candidates don't give speeches anymore. <laughs> they give the same stump speech again and again and again. But the days when you would hear, well, so-and-so will be delivering a major economic address yeah. at the Detroit club, you, you know, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to get You wouldn't want to get paid by the word if you were writing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what, you know, this started with, uh, I'll take on the burden of another uh, Republican candidate, Sarah Palin, in 2008, when she was the vice presidential nominee, she was really the first candidate to go over the heads of the media and to do all of her speaking via Facebook. And she would, you know, be uninterrupted for a page. Well, you can imagine, if you've read them, what they sounded like, if you know anything about Governor Palin. Um, go back four years now, compared to Twitter, they, it's like reading the Federalist Papers. <laughs> I mean, the level of detail and so forth. But all it is now uh, is Trump tweeted an hour later, the Clinton people tweeted, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a terrible way to discuss ideas. Gloria, did you think in the 60s and 70s that you'd have to wait till 2016 to see a female president of the United States, if that's what we do so? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, I did not think, for instance, that Hillary Clinton could win in 2008. Uh, I thought it was just too soon uh, for deep reasons. You know, I mean, I think we are mostly raised when we're children by women. We associate female authority with childhood. Some, if you're not accustomed to seeing it at all, you kind of feel regressed to childhood you know, when you see a woman in authority. I just thought it was too soon. I think now there probably have been 
enough female human beings in the world and in the United States so that it, she can be elected, Hillary Clinton, but it's going to be hell. Mm -hmm. I mean, because this is the biggest, most powerful patriarchy in the world, and the idea, the idea that a woman would have the nerve, you know, to be in a position like that is really offensive to a minority, but a very fervent minority. And, you know, that's part of Trump's appeal. Mm -hmm. And he is ruthless about what he says about her, ruthless. So it's going to be hell. Yeah. You're nodding your head there. I, I, um, I for sure felt that uh, 2008 was too early. Um, I didn't, I would have been absolutely shocked, but I have to say, I was also shocked we um, elected an African American president. I mean, I remember when it happened, I thought I'd be overjoyed. You know, I live pretty near Harlem in Manhattan, and you could hear this roar coming and you know it was this this chilling exciting moment it came down our street parades and I just remember feeling kind of frozen like I, I can't believe this has actually mm. happened it took me a while to feel the sort of excitement and I think I was terrified um, mm. you said it's going to be hell I mean mm. I I remember thinking oh this is going to get ugly it's going to get really ugly and actually it did for a while um, but but we've acclimated culturally, and I maybe um, will do this again. I still have my reservations about whether or not we're, we're, the country could elect uh, a female president. I'm very scared about that, mm. that, that that is going to be a problem. I, I will just say also, you know, Trump, with Fiorina, uh, would talk about her face, and, um, and it fascinated me that she didn't say, what the hell does that have to do with my policy? You know, but she didn't. Instead, she eked out of him an apology and a comment that she's actually beautiful. And I remember thinking, well, that pretty much says it. There was no, how dare you? You know, what does that have to do with how I'm going to run this country? And she couldn't say it. It fascinated me. What she needed was for him to say, no, I'm sorry, actually, you're, you're a beautiful woman. And I thought, well, that, that's a pretty good summary of the state of things. We've raised um, gender and race there, and I'd like to, like to tackle both of those. Thomas, what is your view on the state of race relations in America? Um, not good. Uh, slowly, geologically getting better. Um, I do think it was an enormous uh, thing that happened in 2008. I mean, I remember, I, I voted for John McCain in 2008. I also remember that night when Barack Obama came out in Grant Park and I watched on my television and I remember sitting there and I remember weeping. Yeah. And I was overjoyed for my country that, you know, we had done this. I wished it had been the person I had voted for. And I remember saying to myself, eh, he's going to make you cry a couple of other times too. And, then, and he has uh, in the <laughs> intervening eight years. But I think it was a great thing. Uh, I do think you'd uh, be as naive as you could possibly be to think that there isn't a racial undercurrent uh, uh, in what's mm -hmm. going on uh, with Trump. There is a sense of uh, displacement, uh, anger about that. And uh, it's just 
um, there's something horrible and gestural about this, as I say, because he's not, he's not a conventional right-wing ideologue. Uh, he voted for Kerry in 2004. Uh, many of his positions are to the left of the entire Republican field. As I say, he stands for nothing. But this, uh, he's a kind of proxy insulter. Uh, and people express this rage to him. I think there are many millions of people who are for him right now and may go on to vote for him who don't really want to see him be president. They really do fear a Trump presidency, but he is their chance to insult everybody that they feel is insulting them, whether it's the establishment of politicians in Washington, the media, even, you know, there are no more rubes, as somebody once said, in America. I mean, everybody has a certain kind of uh, media savvy. I think it was Peggy Noonan who said that. There are no more rubes today. And everybody knows, even the most under-informed voter, that the media have made idiots of themselves in the last year, and they're taking pleasure in that too. But it's very, very dangerous, and it's gone on for too damn long already. Gloria, you set up the uh, centre in 2005 to try and increase um, the, the role and profile of women in the media, has do women have a strong voice in the media in America now? In the media? Uh, no, I mean, we've made a lot of progress, but still women have to be younger and all kinds of things to get on camera. Uh, the number of decision makers, real decision makers about who gets covered and who doesn't is something like 5%. But of course, we have now alternate media, you know, so we have the web, so we have all kinds of ways of expressing that we, that we didn't have before. Um, but on the subject of Trump, I, you know, I really think we have to remember what a profound racist he is. You know, he was a birther. He was a leading person trying to disqualify President Obama, one of the best presidents we've ever had. I mean, you know, he's outrageous. And when people are asked why they vote for him, they say he, because he is a successful businessman and therefore he's able to run the country. He is not a successful businessman. He is a con man. Somebody figured out if he had just invested the money he inherited, he would be richer than he is now. He has gone bankrupt several times, you know. See, he is a joke at every level, but he is representing a backlash mainly of working class white males who feel like the world has slipped out from under them. Uh, something like 80% of unmarried women are against him and 70 some percent of married women. I mean, you know, I think what's going to save us are African American voters and unmarried female voters <laughs> are going to wipe him up, you know, wipe, wipe the floor with him, I hope. You talk a bit about um, you know, those who are feeling dispossessed. Is America still a country that you can be born into poverty and bring yourself into success and prosperity? Um, I, I'm very close to that um, theme, you know, that meme. So my husband was born in a very poor part of Manchester in England, and very poor, very rough. I don't actually think there's an American equivalent to it. It's pretty dire. Sorry for those of you from, from Manchester. I think, is Jeanette Winterson from Northern England? Sorry, Jeanette. Um, so I heard the accent last night. So it, he rose out of that, but he didn't really rise out of that. I, I think he, you know, he doesn't have a formal education, 
I have a PhD from MIT, you know, and I, I married somebody who has no formal education. Um, and I've, and he, he's now an American citizen. And to him, I mean, that's what it means to, to move to America, to be American means his accent. I don't bring up the accent lightly. His accent is erased. In fact, it's charming in America. It's absolutely a mark in England, his accent, his northern poor accent. Um, and so I think that still is true to an extent that you, that there's this sense of coming to America as a place to become yourself, to escape the shackles of your poverty or your culture or your upbringing. And, um, and so I do feel this affinity for that, that ideal, that American ideal. I do, I do feel it myself. However, having said that, our class divide is enormous to other people. It's been, it's been very interesting. So we have a lot of friends who are interracial couples, lesbians, gay people, whatever. Our class divide, people are like, what? And um, they find that much more shocking. Um, and it's what been very interesting. What do you mean by that? What, what class divide are you talking about? Well, that he, you know, I came from a much more privileged upbringing. I don't deny that. I had many more opportunities. Oh, so that, that, that is a bigger shock to them than... Uh, than an interracial marriage or a gay... Again, I'm talking from the, pros, you know, the, the perspective of New York City. So it is a, a strange group of people. But, um, but <laughs> um, New York values um, and all that. Um, but yeah, it just seems to be something that's very shocking that people have to process. They want us to explain how it possibly happened. How did it possibly happen? You know, the woman who had all of these opportunities and this privilege and went to MIT and went to Ivy League schools and has these degrees and would marry a man from Manchester with no education. Because... Yeah, because Thomas... I wonder it too myself sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's, he's very charming. It was, it was the accent. <laughs> this is a real thing, though, isn't it? Because when you read about the, the top 1% and the inequality, and part of it is that rich people are marrying rich people. No. I have no experience of poor any men. of that. Uh, <laughs> poor, poor men are marrying rich women. This is, you know, we once tried to figure out if it was true that women could sleep their way to wealth and power in, at Ms. Magazine in an editorial meeting. You know, so we did all this research, and it, well, you know, women get good dentistry and, you know, nice clothes and stuff like that, but not real power. It turned out that sons-in-law are the ones who sleep their way to wealth and power <laughs> because there are all these families of inherited wealth and if they have the misfortune of having no sons or a ne'er-do-well son and the daughter inherits, then they have to find a son-in-law. I mean, the New York Times, restaurants, I mean, you... Anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> Thomas. I mean, I do think that... Um, America remains more socially mobile than most Western industrialized countries. Not as much as it was. If it were as much as it was, you wouldn't have somebody like Bernie Sanders resonating uh, the way he does. Uh, but um, I think that, uh, and in some ways, the Trump business, it is a reflection, a kind of dark reflection, of a dynamic society, a very fluid society, which has changed enormously in recent decades. But I do think because uh, the American dream has often been put in purely materialistic terms, uh, people do um, think economically when they vote. The, my first real political memory, I was nine years old when uh, Nixon ran against Kennedy, and I lived in an Irish Catholic town on Long Island. All of the 
fathers had grown up in the city and then had uh, done well enough to buy a little patch of land in the suburbs, whatever. And uh, in 1960, uh, all of the uh, people on my block voted for um, Nixon, not for Kennedy. They had been New Dealers when they were young, and then they began to see their fortunes in the Republican Party. They, and it was a class thing, because class does trump... Oh, God. Um, <laughs> it, it, does, uh, it does supersede a lot of other identities. And they looked at Kennedy, and they saw a guy who had, whose father had gone to Harvard. Uh, not just him. They looked at Nixon, and they saw, this guy looks like me going to night school to get an accountant's degree. I identify with him. He's the guy on the way up. I'm going to go with him. Even though um, JFK was the first Catholic president. I think that meant very, very little. little. I remember when we were young, I, I remember there was enormous pride um, after uh, President Kennedy's death. It was the first time many Americans had seen a Catholic mass. And... Uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Kennedy's uh, dignity and so forth. In some ways, this was a high watermark of Catholicism in the States. And I remember we were being very proud of ourselves as Catholics, but that identity was uh, much subordinate to economic considerations in 1960. We're talking about religion and politics. Could an atheist ever be a president of America? <laughs> oh, I live for the day. <laughs> <laughs> A single gay atheist. <laughs> the only thing better than an atheist would be a pagan. Oh, heaven. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's a bit of a mystery to us. Um, why it's so, right. Well, just the, the, the centrality of religion in American political life, or from this distance anyway. I mean, mm. it very rarely enters the political discourse in New Zealand. Actually, the whole country is becoming less and less religious. But the problem is that some churches, like those 8,000 fundamentalist Baptist churches and Catholic churches, have become a vote delivery system. And especially in the primaries, that really matters. But it doesn't reflect, actually, the majority religiosity or lack of religiosity in, in the States. I have another uh, mystery I'd like cleared up. Uh -huh. um, why is there seemingly uh, an aversion to public health provision in America? Why is that seen as some sort, sort of socialism or even communism? It's absolutely mystifying to me. I mean, um, one of the candidates who shall remain nameless, but we've discussed a lot tonight, um, said something like, we won't let them die on the streets, but nothing before that. <laughs> so that was very, very that does bars. not sound like good economy <laughs> to wait until they need, you know, multi-million dollar intervention on the street before you um, give them medical attention. I mean, it's, it, it, it is mystifying to me. I actually have no idea, really no idea. I mean, I feel Tom like you might have better insight, but I, I can say that I've lived in England for a few years um, with the National Health Service there. And, um, it, it was interesting, as a person who can afford health insurance, it really is hard to say which is better, um, in the sense that when I was in the National Health Service, it was kind of terrifying at times, because you sort of get passed around, you never see the same doctor, you have no... Um, it, the care was really very different than what I was used to. But in America, you have this hideous situation where there are people who, um, who, who can not have 
medical care. It's just absolutely mystifying, and it's clearly an economic disaster. Clearly, there's no sense in the economy of that. Um, it's absolutely much more expensive for the country that that's happened. Thomas? Uh, on, on healthcare, I, nobody could waste your time more than I would. I, it's so beyond my ability to you know, come up with anything uh, interesting to say. I do think, though, the issue of uh, the degree to which the federal government should be involved in whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, I, I think the uh, federal government is overly involved in higher education. Uh, in the United States right now. There really are no such things as private universities anymore. Um, these are all matters for debate, and generally Americans have shown a disposition for less state control, less state involvement than, again, other Western industrialized countries. But we are not going to be having that debate this fall, just as we are not going to be having the debate over whether the... Uh, uh, overreaches of the Bush foreign policy uh, were properly or improperly replaced by what some people would say is the underreaching of the Obama foreign policy, too much withdrawal from the, wo the world. It's another debate we're not going to have. We're going to have a Twitter debate about Donald Trump talking about Bill Clinton's infidelities, things like that. Uh, Mrs. Clinton will certainly be talking more about issues than he will, but that's not going to be what voters are going to be talking about. And to me, um, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to believe listening to me, I suppose, but I mean, my sensibility about politics has essentially been comic uh, in the novels I've written, but I think it's a, a terrible, terrible season, and none of this is going to be discussed. Gloria, what would, you said you're a hopeholic, what would a, a Clinton presidency look like? Well, can I go back to the health question sure. for a moment? Because I, I think that the missing element here is following the money, all right? The insurance industry in the United States is the last big industry that is not federally regulated at all, except for a little bit with Obamacare. That was the first time. And it controls state legislatures. The most uh, frequent occupation of a state legislator is insurance agent. It is a hugely profitable business that is just out there uncontrolled. And that whole element is against universal health care. And that is huge. It doesn't reflect necessarily the majority opinion of mm -hmm. individual Americans. It is a huge economic interest, even bigger than the gun <laughs> interest. I mean, it is enormous. And you know, I think we have to remember that. And we have to pay attention to our state legislatures. It's really our fault as social justice movements, to some extent, that we haven't done that. I only discovered this from the Equal Rights Amendment because we had to go through, we were supposed to get, you know, 38 state legislatures. And it educated me about how uh, much in the control of a very few economic interests the state legislatures are. And they can redistrict themselves into perpetuity. So we have to pay more attention, as much attention to them as we do to the federal government, to Washington. You mentioned the gun lobby there. Do you see a time when a mass shooting in America is actually a, a news yeah. event? I'm, I, this is uh, something where y you get so worn down that you can't believe 
what you get used to. I mean, seeing Obama go up time and time again and say, I cannot believe I'm doing this again. This is insanity. Um, it's, uh, it, it's just heartbreaking. I think it's an absolutely heartbreaking epidemic in our country. And um, I, I, I don't have the hopeaholism, unfortunately. I, I think I, I, I'm quite cynical about it. Um, if, if what's already happened isn't bad enough, then nothing is ever going to be bad enough. There is nothing, nothing that can happen that is bad enough um, to change that discourse. So I think what's going to be required is such a massive paradigm shift that I can't even see it right now. What is it going to take? It's not going to take a worse incident. It, it's going to have to take something else, and I don't even know what that is. Um, but, but my heart breaks for the president every time he comes out and has to do that. Thomas? Guns? What, yeah. What, um, what, what Don't pull out a gun right now. <laughs> <laughs> what could force a change? Again, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a mystery when, when, when you look at it from, from here to, to see why these incidents don't uh, provoke some yeah. tightening of the rules or some real rethink about how this is allowed to happen. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it's a very minor thing. We had, we did have an assault weapons ban for a while, and we don't have it any longer. And to some extent, that is a rep, uh, is a, a manifestation of how dug in everybody is. That uh, it simply becomes uh, well, therefore, so I can't be for it. And uh, I think uh, gun control, in many respects, is more effectively done at the state level. There are some states in the United States that have very strict and progressive gun control laws. Um, the cultural aspects of uh, guns are a complete mystery to me. Uh, I've never held a gun in my life. I've never known anybody uh, who owned a gun. And I lived in Texas for a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gloria? You know, I... I haven't looked at the polls lately, but I'm pretty sure that the majority of Americans are for reasonable uh, gun controls and, you know, not, I mean, you know, all the measures that, not outlawing guns completely, but sensible gun controls. But again, the, the interests who make the guns, I mean, I see them in the halls of the United Nations selling arms. To, it, it is really, I would say, three quarters about economics and one quarter about a kind of testosterone poisoning or something you know, that's, um, that some people like, you know, Charlton Heston in his day and so on. I think we should run an ad where he said uh, they will have to take a gun out of these my, cold... My cold, dead hand. <laughs> ...and say, they're cold and dead, take it. <laughs> but it is, it is a lot about economics, too, uh, and there is a huge movement for gun control. Uh, and I think, you know, I think we, we can do it, but we have to have candidates to vote for who are for gun control. And it's hard for them to get elected because there's so much money put in for the pro-gun control people. And we have to demystify it. I mean, everybody talks about the Second Amendment and how sacred it is. In actual fact, it was not the majority of our founding fathers who wanted to have guns and wanted the Second Amendment, it was the slave states. And why did they insist as a measure of their participation, you know, that they, that we have uh, the Second Amendment? 
because they wanted to be able to put down slave rebellions with guns. It was bad from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It is what lawyers called the fruit of the poison tree. It was always bad. And when we get that out there, we get the majority opinion, but once again, it's the money. I think actually, if I can just um, say, I think this is a very crucial point, which I always overlook. I, I, I think very ideologically, you know, platonically about things, mathematically about things. But, but what you're describing, I think, is actually sort of the point throughout when we look at this uh, state of America, insanity, so much of it distills to financial power. And, um, and by forgetting that, I don't see a solution. But if we remember that, suddenly, you know, there's an actual something to deal with to try mm -hmm. to make amends, both in terms of um, health care, you know, gun mm -hmm. control, um, election of presidents, which is incredibly about financial power. Um, and as is discussed very much in the States, I'm not sure how much comes out, but, but uh, the, the raising of money is this insanity mm -hmm. in the political system. No, I think that's so important because just because people win, we think they're winning. No, actually, they're not winning hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. They are winning at an economic level. Mm -hmm. But the voting booth is the one place on earth where the most powerful and the least powerful are equal. And our voter turnout rate is worse than India with all the problems of poverty and illiteracy. So, you know, it's up to us as social justice movements to combat money with people power. Thomas, why do you think the voter turnout is so low? Why don't people participate? Well, that's the old joke, because it only encourages them, uh, <laughs> if you vote for them. Um, I do think that a lot of people, um, they don't feel they've been given enough to vote for. I do think one curious thing about this election, though, for all of the debates about uh, money in politics, and American elections are uh, ridiculously expensive, um, you do have... Uh, two candidates who have not been financed uh, in any conventional way. Uh, as Bernie Sanders will tell you, um, $27 uh, was the average contribution, and he has succeeded in running a very prolonged and vigorous campaign uh, on small donations. That's a very good and encouraging thing. The other anomaly, of course, is Trump. And uh, it's not that he has had this huge personal fortune to spend on his campaign. He spent almost no money running for president because the media gave him all the time and all the exposure that he wanted. And so uh, the, this election has somewhat upended uh, the debate uh, about money and politics. Mm. I want to open this up for questions um, in about uh, seven or eight minutes or so. But we, we've talked a lot about the negative stuff in America, and there's so much good stuff. I want to talk about some of that. What is the, what is the cool stuff about America? What excites you? <laughs> Tell me um, some good stuff. Yeah, I'm not. Stuff. I'm definitely not in an anti-America phase, despite everything that's happening. I went through that, I think, as every teen does and every traveler does, where you just think, ah, oh, it's like your parents. You know, they know nothing. They're ignorant. <laughs> that's America. Um, but, but, um, but I'm back in the states, and um, and I was very moved uh, when my husband got his citizenship, mm. and they had, um, I think it was 29 countries represented in the room, and yeah. they stood up by country, um, and were organized by country, mm. and, um, and I, you know, I, I feel that there is a hopefulness 
um, about Americans in general. You can kind of see it on their face. I can spot an American in any country from a mile away. There's this sort of openness to their faces. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I think that, that that's what we're going to rely on to, to, to get us through these dark phases. And also, there's an incredible amount of innovation that comes out of the state still because, yes. um, because of this fantasy of the ideal that you're supposed to uh, the original, it's a little so much that everybody wants to be the original innovator. Nobody wants to actually work as part of the machine. That's, I'm sure, a problem. But so that's cool. And also there's, you know, culturally, I think America is still really exciting. I think there's a lot of exciting things that come out of very disenfranchised branches in the States culturally somehow. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm still, I still find it interesting. Yeah. Thomas? Um, you know, I think that um, on balance, I, uh, I'm proud to be American. And uh, I think my, I've seen my country participate blunderingly and disastrously in the world at times. But I think on the whole, America has been more of a force for good uh, than otherwise in the world. And I think uh, a world from which American influence is absent would be more dangerous uh, than a world that America sometimes bigfoots through. Uh, I do think it's still a dynamic country. Uh, immigration, despite what one is hearing now, is a tremendous success story in the United Absolutely. States. Since the reform of the immigration laws in 1965, America has absorbed a tremendous number of immigrants from races and regions that it did not absorb them from prior to 1965, and it has, by and large, worked out just fine. And I would say, I mean, to quote the great legislator Barbara Jordan, what she said about the Constitution, I would paraphrase it for America. My faith in America, in the most basic way, it is whole, it is complete, it is total. And, uh, you know, we survived Benedict Arnold, Jefferson Davis, Lee Harvey Oswald, and we will survive this preposterous son of a bitch. <laughs> Are you proud to be an American, Gloria? Yes, I am, actually, even though sometimes I pretend to be a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I agree with you about hope. I mean, I find, especially when I'm in a European country, that what I miss is hope. And that's deep, because hope is a form of planning, really. And if it wasn't already real within us, we, we couldn't even hope for it. So... Uh, what do you I, think of when you think but, of hope, though? Well, but yeah. here's, here's one other thing that gives me hope, even though it's right now the source of resistance, which is that in about 20 minutes, <laughs> no, in about, I don't know, 20 years, but it, the United States is going to no longer be a majority European-American or white country. Uh, and that means we're going to look more like the world. You know, we're not going to be so isolated. Um, I've always been proud that we're a, a diversity, multicultural, multiracial living experiment. But the fact that that, and, and the first generation of babies of majority babies of color 
has already been born. So this is going to happen. But this is also a crucial source of the backlash because the people who have been raised to believe that their identity depends on a hierarchy and a racial hierarchy uh, are, are really upset and terrified, and that's why the same groups are against immigration that are against uh, contraception, safe and legal abortion. I mean, you know, they will cheerfully look at me and say the white race is committing suicide through contraception, abortion, and so on. So that's the source of backlash, but also the source of, of hope, and we're now on the cusp of it. You're raising uh, a family in, in New York. What, what is it like to have um, kids in New York? There was a time when my kids hated New York, which was really painful to me, and now they, they love it. Um, I think it's, there's a lot of independence being a child in New York, we never get into a car. Um, and we get into taxis. But, you know, I'm not bundling them into cars and shuttling them places. They, they walk to school. Um, there's a park on our block. They, they know the homeless guy on our corner. His name's Kevin. Um, Kevin says, like, you know, hey, how's Gibson? You know, asks about the kids. Um, so it's a very, I, I, I mean, everyone's upbringing is unusual. No matter where you're raised, somehow, in some sense, it's specific. And so they have this very specific experience of the city and of an urban life. And it's very interesting to me on this um, theme that they do not see race very much. Uh, in their perception of people. Um, and, um, but they do see class. And I've noticed that as the kids got older, groups would start to separate, not on the basis of color, um, but on the basis of like professors, parents versus, you know, the, and, and it wasn't intentional. Um, it wasn't at all intentional. I don't even think they know what the parents are or who the parents are. It's just that somehow you saw the, the, their culture, subcultural familiarity start to take over mm. in somewhat, some sense. Like artist kids, professors kids, we're all kind of together. Um, anyway, so, so, so I, I think they're going to have an unusual perspective. And they do talk about politics. Um, my, my nine-year-old says, I want the girl to win. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, uh, my 12-year-old son will walk past if the news is on and say, not that idiot again. And not a, a, about um, Donald Trump, not about Hillary Clinton. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old who said something quite similar. Um, <laughs> thank you so much to my guests and thank to you, you, the audience. Good evening. Our 2016 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.